Good morning, Woods Edge. How are we doing this morning? Good. So good for me to be back here with you all. I was here back in July, as he said, and it was good for me to reconnect with a lot of familiar faces and uh, meet some new folks. I'm from just down the road in Spring, Texas. I went to Klein High School. Go Bearcats. And uh, it's such an honor, really, truly an honor for me to get asked to come back to preach the word here at Woods Edge with you guys. Uh, but I got to be honest, I am uh, I'm from Austin uh, currently, and and uh, I'm used to preaching to people that look a little different than you, uh, a lot less families and khakis, and a lot more uh, tattoos and piercings and skinny jeans. So, uh, but it's good to be here. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, if you got a Bible this morning, open it up to uh, Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one. My aim and purpose this morning is to show you from God's word. Uh, if you're a believer here this morning that there is a constant source of delight and blessing available to you in the scriptures. Now, the world calls this happiness. And if you haven't noticed, everyone is searching for that these days. Uh, We live in a world currently where the truth of something is no longer measured by its veracity, uh, its universal acceptance, or even its ability to be proven. Uh, No, we... Truth nowadays is much simpler. We, we live in a world where the truth of something is judged by its perceived ability to make you happy. And so the world is asking, what good is a truth if it doesn't make me happy? And so truth and happiness have become something really that's communicated primarily not by facts and figures or investigation and research, but rather by story, story, personal experience. Is someone telling us a compelling story of what will make you happy? Then that is a truth worth following, according to the wisdom of our day. And a perfect example of this was a book that came out in 2006, later a film, called Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, If you don't know what Eat, Pray, Love is, it is the story of a woman in her mid-30s who is married with kids. She's achieved everything in this life that is traditionally associated with completeness and happiness, but she's not happy. And so she divorces her family, her husband, leaves her family, goes on a worldwide quest to enjoy all the finer things of life that this world can provide, eat, and then she falls in love, or sorry, she goes to seek out spiritual wisdom uh, with some, you know, Eastern guru and, and tries to learn balance or, and whatever that is, and uh, that's the prey. And then she falls in love with some hot Brazilian passionate businessman And uh, that's what she calls love. Uh, And I'm not sure I need to convince you this morning of how much this story took the world by storm when it came out. And then, and when Oprah endorsed it, and then uh, Julia Roberts depicts it. Just so you know, whenever Oprah endorses your book and Julia Roberts depicts you in a film, you've kind of hit a nerve, culturally speaking, right? And, And people began to make Eat, Pray, Love their new truth, their new life slogan. That's what they're gonna live by now. We want to be happy. And when we're wrestling with and imagining this concept of happiness and the good life, we're almost never thinking of a list of things to do. Maybe you do that, but more so what we're, what we're actually thinking of and imagining is almost always a vision. It's a, a picture of something that captures for us everything that we want out of life and everything that would make us happy. Maybe you're here this morning and you're single and and for you that vision of the good life is just meeting your soulmate and finding someone who can be your spouse who knows you and who loves you unconditionally and you can love unconditionally and you can live happily ever after. 
Or maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with infertility. And your vision of the good life is uh, having a bunch of little munchkins around you that are giggling and laughing and making messes, but they're cute, so you want to Instagram them so everyone can see it. Or maybe you're here this morning, you've got tons of kids, and your vision of the good life is just getting rid of a couple of them so you can breathe finally, start to think a little bit. Maybe you hate your job this morning, and your vision is just having a, a, a job that you like. Or maybe you're struggling with a crippling illness this morning, and, and your vision of the good life is just being free from that finally. Maybe your marriage is a disaster. We could go on and on with circumstances, but the point is when we imagine the good life it's almost always in terms of having a vision of what that looks like. And Psalm 1 gives us an entirely new perspective on the good life. It gives us a new vision, or maybe a competing vision, to the one we came in with this morning. And that's what constitutes happiness, according to Psalm 1. The, the word that the Bible uses to capture this sense of holistic happiness is the word blessed. Blessed. No hashtag. I said that in the 8.30 and no one laughed. I think it was a lot of old people. Uh, <laughs> this vision of the, of the blessed life in Psalm 1, it's more about a source than it is about circumstances. It's more about a source of delight and blessing in your life than it is about getting all of the circumstances just right in your life. There is a source of great blessing available to you in the scriptures that will allow you to weather any circumstances that you face in this life. And so with that, uh, let's look at Psalm 1 together. Psalm 1 is a short parable. It's a mini poetic story uh, of the blessed life. And we're going to look at what exactly the psalmist's vision of the good life is. So read with me. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So here's this guy who is blessed, the psalm tells us, which is just a way of saying he's fully happy. Now, why is this man blessed? Uh, well, we learn that this man is blessed because he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. So he's not taking his cues for how to live his life from the self-absorbed, self-promoting, self-centered, self-righteous world out there. He's not taking his cues for how to live his life from Oprah's book list or Eat, Pray, Love, or Deepak Chopra, or, or any of the get-rich-quick schemes that are out there for you. He, he also doesn't stand in the way of sinners. So he's not just this untethered, aimless soul who's just looking for the next thing for the world to throw at him to guide and direct him in his life. And verse 1 also tells us that he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He's not sitting around scoffing at everyone. You know people like this. Maybe it's you. Uh, these are the people who make it their main goal in life to just sit there, arms crossed. Notice they're not going anywhere. They're just sitting, scoffing, cynical. Everything's stupid. Everyone's got an agenda. So I'm just going to sit here. Now, you can make the argument that the scoffers, they're not walking in the counsel of the wicked. Sure, 
I guess good job, but here's the thing. They aren't walking in any council. They aren't walking at all. They're just sitting. This blessed man is not walking in the council of the wicked, but he's also not just sitting there with scoffers. And if I can just pull away here for a moment of of brief honesty, I am a recovering scoffer, and I live among a generation of scoffers. Uh, If you're in my generation, you meet everything that you hear with a collective eye roll. That's just, that's the way you could characterize my generation, right? I was once deceived into thinking that as long as I wasn't following all of the stupid advice and the stupid things that I hear coming from all over the place in the world, like all these sheep are around me, then that'll be good. That's a good life for me. That is a counterfeit of the blessed life, is what Psalm 1 tells us. I was sitting with scoffers. Don't do that. Don't be deceived like I was. There's absolutely no blessing there. There's no joy in a life like that. Okay, back to our story. So we've got this guy who's blessed. He doesn't walk according to the wisdom of the world. He doesn't sit back with his arms folded with the scoffers. What does he do? What's he about? Verse 2 tells us. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What does he do? He delights. He treasures God's word. Notice, delight precedes discipline. When when talking about the blessed life, he's not giving us a to-do list here. He's giving us a vision of what this life looks like, what it feels like. Something has happened to this man. He's seen something or experienced something that has turned him now into being a delighter. And you can't stop a delighter from meditating. Just try to. Just try to tell some love-struck guy to stop meditating and thinking of the woman that he loves. He can't. Or as John Mayer, the wise sage poet, once sang, (laughs) you love who you love, who you love. You can't make yourself stop dreaming who you're dreaming of. Amen? (laughs) Why? Because there's delight there. This blessed man treasures the word of God. Now there's the source that I was talking about earlier. Remember, the blessed life is more about a source than it is about circumstances. We know nothing of the circumstances of this blessed man's life. And the point is, we don't need to. We don't know anything about what his life, what his his marriage, what his relationships, what his work, what his family, what his kids are like. We don't need to. Why? Because he's got a source of delight that he meditates on day and night. It's irrespective of circumstances. It doesn't matter. Now let me ask a question here. What would happen to you if you treasured the word of God like this? What would it look like in your life, in the circumstances you're in right now, if you truly treasured the word of God like this guy does? And what would happen here at Wood's Edge if it could be said that Wood's Edge was full of people who treasure the word of God like this? Now, I know that this church is great about trusting the Bible's inspiration, authority, and you guys preach the Bible week in, week out. That's awesome. But what about you, Christian? What about you? I'm not talking about Jeff Wells. Do you treasure the word of God? Enough to pour over it and meditate on it day and night? You see, no one goes digging for gold because they just love digging. If you see a grown man in a field digging, uh, he's either a crazy person or he's got a body in a bag next to him. Okay, Digging 
People dig for gold because they are imagining what their life will be like whenever they get the gold. There is a vision of the good life that the riches will bring them. That's what drives them to go deeper and deeper into the mine. Busting through solid rock, hauling away rubble and sifting through rocks and dirt day after day, all day in the hot sun. See, for some of you, you you can recall a time in your life when the Bible was coming alive to you in ways that you never thought possible. And you were learning new things about our God and the gospel and found yourself in places of awe and amazement at the riches that are found there. But some time has passed since those days and you find yourself now in a place where the Bible is just, just the Bible. And for whatever reason, you're not as motivated to keep mining for those riches deeper and deeper. Maybe that time for you is college. You're in a college ministry that was really active, and those, those days are long gone now. Or, or maybe you took a class, or you were in a Bible study, and it ended, and now you're just kind of alone now with the, with the Bible, and the magic has kind of faded for you. Or maybe you one year got really excited about the Bible, and you got really gung-ho about knowing and studying it, and so you dove in head first, and... You hit a dry spell around, I don't know, Leviticus, and you just didn't really know what there was to get excited about in there. Or maybe things just got hard for you, and you were kind of just left wondering in that season of your life, what, what was the, what's the point of all this anyway? Other things just began to seem more pressing, more relevant to you than an ancient text. The psalmist continues in verse 3. He says, what happens to you? What, what does your life look like when you treasure the word of God? He explains what this looks like. He says, this blessed man who treasures the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. I love that imagery. This man who is blessed because he treasures the word of God is like a tree that is planted by a constant source of life. Don't you want that? Don't you want to feel planted somewhere? No longer with this sense of wandering or detachment, but planted and rooted in something that is going to be constantly life-giving, constantly feeding your soul. That's what treasuring the Word of God is like, it says. But it's not just about being planted and fed by the stream. It's about bearing fruit. You plant a tree to get fruit, right? And, And a tree planted in these conditions cannot help but bear fruit. But what does it say about it? It says it's seasonal, bears fruit in its season. Uh, This last year, I I planted three fruit trees in my backyard. Planted a fig tree, uh, a lemon tree, and a peach tree. And I'm really excited because I'm not a gardener at all. I don't think I've ever gotten anything I've ever planted to grow anything successfully. Uh, But I'm really hopeful about these trees. And so I get online and I'm, I'm doing all kinds of studying about the quirks and properties of these trees. And I learned something really interesting about them, that each of these trees has their own fruit-bearing season. Now, call me an idiot, but uh, I was just under the impression that if I just planted them in some dirt where there was sun and I watered these trees, uh, I don't know, sang to them maybe, uh, that they would just kind of begin to crank fruit out like just a machine, you know? Like, uh, not so. (laughs) Um, Not much of a gardener, I told you. If I hadn't read that about my trees, though, I would have thought that there was something defective with them. Look outside. No fruit? Stupid trees. Or stupid gardener, maybe. Uh, 
It's, it's possible, in other words, for it to be a perfectly healthy fruit tree, but produce fruit seasonally. Seasonally. Fruit all year round is not how this thing works. And seasonal fruit bearing for someone who treasures the word of God does not mean that there is a one-to-one correlation between reading the Bible and bearing fruit in your life. I don't read a passage on joy one morning and instantly walk away as a completely joyful person in all circumstances. That's not the way it works because that's not the way watering a tree works. I don't water the trees in my backyard in the morning and then come home and expect fully grown delicious peaches in the evening. That's not the way it works. Seasonal fruit bearing does not mean constant, instantaneous fruit bearing. And that's really hard for us in our day and age, right? Uh, we are such a, an efficiency, results-driven, instant gratification people that whenever we give ourselves to something, we pour ourselves into something, and it's not yielding a return that we want, we're just ready to punt it. It's not working. Seasonal fruit bearing does not mean constant, instantaneous fruit bearing, but it does mean regular fruit bearing regular fruit bearing. There is a regularity to fruit appearing in your life that you can count on when you treasure the word of God over time. Over time. And for those of you who are here this morning and and you treasure the word of God, you've planted yourselves by streams of water, you sometimes have a tendency to get disappointed at the lack of fruit you see come in your life from it. I'm trying to delight in the word, but I still lack joy. I still don't love the the people in my life that are hard to love. I'm trying to delight myself in the word, but I still struggle with lust. I still blow up at my kids or my wife in anger all the time. What's up with that? I've I've planted myself here by this stream, in other words, but, but I keep coming up with nothing, no fruit, week after week, month after month. All I've got are leaves, and I don't want leaves. I want fruit. And so in those moments, you're tempted to uproot yourself from the stream and go figure something else out. What Psalm 1 encourages us to do is to stay planted there. Keep delighting. Keep treasuring. The fruit season is coming. Keep memorizing. Keep studying. Keep meditating. Keep digging into the scriptures. There is gold in there. Now the flip side of this is that many of you live lives where you assent to the Bible's authority, you assent to the Bible's inspiration and sufficiency in your life, and you might even be regularly reading it. But multiple seasons in your life have passed, and you've kind of now just made peace with the fact that maybe your fruit-bearing years are over, and you're just sort of content with just having leaves that haven't withered. You know, hey, I'm, I'm not bearing regular fruit, can't say that I have in a while, But hey, at least my my leaves are still green, haven't withered. I'm sure in a room this size that we have people here who love the Bible, love the church, love getting to minister to people. But but if you were honest with me this morning, you're just kind of burned out from life, from family, from ministry, from mission, from community, from church, from bearing fruit for God in all of these areas of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you at one point were, were so stirred by the word of God that you went on mission overseas. You went to the unreached. But now you're back with no real vision for bearing fruit again. 
Or maybe you're here this morning and you at one point were so stirred by the word that you plugged yourself in here at Wood's Edge and you were an integral part of this family here and you were serving and you were a part of what was going on here. But that was a while back and you've taken a break and that break never really ended. Or maybe you're here this morning and you at one point in your life were so stirred by the word to go share the gospel with your neighbors or your coworkers, but you've kind of forgotten about that joy and the impulse that the word was producing in you to do that was it's kind of faded now. Now I don't say any of this to shame, to shame you this morning, if that's you. I say this to encourage you. Plant yourself by this stream. And I promise you, Psalm 1 promises you, God is promising you, your fruit-bearing years are not over. There are plenty more seasons of bearing fruit to come for you. So the psalmist is telling us that this guy is blessed because he treasures the word of God and because of that he's planted himself near an ever-flowing source of life that will cause him to bear regular fruit throughout his life. Now I mentioned earlier that this psalm tells us a mini story, a mini poetic story of this blessed man's life. And so far, we really don't have much of a story, right? Remember English class? In a story, you need a central character, which we have, but you also need a central conflict and a resolution. And so far, all we got are just some facts about this guy. We've got a guy who's happy because he loves God's word and because of that he bears regular fruit. The end. Not a story. Uh, but the psalmist provides us with the rest of the story here. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, The wicked are not so, meaning they're not planted by streams of water, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Did you catch the conflict here? A wind is coming, the psalmist tells us. The wind takes many forms in your life. Winds of trials, suffering, temptation, boredom, distraction. And this wind, he tells us, will blow those away who are not planted like chaff. And verse 5 tells us ultimately, ultimately, what that wind culminates in. Judgment. Judgment is coming, the psalmist tells us. And those who are not planted will not stand in the judgment when it comes. Now you might say, wow, that sounds severe. But you see, every vision of the good life that anyone gives you in this world, doesn't matter where it's coming from, whether it's the Bible or Oprah or Gandhi or Kanye, it does not matter who it's coming from, every vision of the good life has within it implicit warnings against those who don't follow it. Everyone who has a take on what will make you happy, doesn't matter where it's coming from, always offers you both a carrot and a stick. Huge blessings for you if you follow it, and severe warnings for you if you don't. And this is God's vision for the good life. So we should expect severe warnings for not following it. And it can easily be said here, by the way, if you want to know what a biblical Christian is, a biblical Christian is one who finds both the blessings and the warnings of the Bible's depiction of the good life, more real, more rich, and more compelling than anyone else's vision of the good life in this world. That's a biblical Christian. Now, wait a second, Stephen. Because we're, we're grace people here. We're gospel people. And it seems like what you're telling me is that 
The psalmist is saying that we are ultimately saved on the basis of whether or not we treasure the Bible. Is that what you're saying? That's clearly wrong, right? Because we're saved by grace, not by works. We're we're saved by believing and trusting in Jesus alone, right? Turn with me really quickly as we close here to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Jesus is going to answer this question head on. John chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 37. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees who are continually rejecting and resisting the things that he was doing and teaching. And he says in verse 37 to them, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And now look at what he says to them here in verse 38. Don't miss this this morning. This is incredible. He says, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe on the one whom he has sent. So the word, abide, the word of God abiding in them, and I take that word abiding to mean delighting in the word, treasuring the word. The word abiding literally means finding its home in them, being planted in them. The word of God abiding in them, Jesus says, is what comes from a belief in Christ. That's what Jesus just said. And so what does this mean for us this morning? I want to be really clear here. It means that if you find over time, over time, that there is no heart in you whatsoever, not even a sliver of desire at all, to treasure and delight in God's word for blessing, based on what Jesus is saying here, you have no saving belief in Christ. Or to put it in the psalmist's words that we just read, you will be blown away like chaff. You will not stand in the judgment. Jesus continues his point here in John 5, verse 39, when he says, You, meaning the unbelieving Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Now, so many people have used this statement from Jesus in recent years in the church, especially to pit Jesus against the scriptures, as though Jesus were saying to us, Don't look at the scriptures for anything, they're worthless. Look at me. And I hope you don't do that this morning because what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees are the ones who are doing that. Only they're doing it from the other way around. They're pitting the scriptures that they studied so diligently against Jesus, the author of them. And we commit the same error if we pit believing in Jesus against the scriptures this morning. Listen, neither Jesus nor the scriptures are a stumbling block for you to fully embracing the other. Neither Jesus nor the scriptures are going to keep you from fully engaging with and treasuring and delighting in the other. Jesus is not against the scriptures here. He's saying that he is in fact woven into them, embedded in them, like gold in a mine. When we talk about the incredible grace of Jesus in the gospel, we are not talking about a Jesus or a gospel of our own making. We're talking about about the Jesus and the gospel of the scriptures. We're never praying to or talking about or worshiping a Jesus detached from the 66 books of the Bible. All of them testify to us about him. His incredible grace to produce fruit in us. His incredible power to overcome sin in your life. His incredible love that he poured out on the cross when he shed his blood for us. And his incredible patience with us. 
when we go through seasons of life when we don't bear fruit. We go to the scriptures and we treasure them because in them we meet Jesus and we know him more. And as we know him more and interact with him more in his word, we receive grace upon grace through the truths and promises that we find here. That's the blessed life that the psalmist is talking about. And and because of this, Jesus is going to pick up on the same fruit-bearing metaphor that we see in Psalm 1 when he says in John 15, verse 4. Don't turn there, just look. He says, abide in me. Stay planted in me. Stay with me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now here's the warning he gives us. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We abide in the vine. We stay planted by streams of water. We bear regular fruit in our life. And we live a blessed life, friends, by treasuring Jesus' word. It's precious, it's life giving, it's soul preserving. Let's pray. Before we go to God in prayer, I just want to invite you this morning, if you're here and you've never made treasuring the word of God or abiding in Jesus a priority, you don't even know what that means, maybe. You're just here and you don't even know what all that means. I just want to invite you in this, in this time that we have to reflect and to respond to Just call out to him. Ask him to reveal himself to you in his word, in the truths of the gospel. Ask him to to connect you to him so that you might bear fruit for him and live a blessed life, truly, truly blessed life in him, regardless of circumstances. If you're here this morning and you've kind of gotten away from abiding in the vine and bearing fruit for Jesus, I just want to invite you back to that. His arms are open. He is ready to receive all who want to abide in him. He will not reject you. And he will cause his life and power to course through you so that you will bear fruit for him and live a blessed life in him. Father, would you forgive us for not treasuring your word, the source of blessing that you've given us in the message and the story of Christ, the blessed one. Father, would you cause our hearts to to repent of all of the times that we've turned to other visions of the good life, other sources of blessing for our life, other than the one that you've given us to be planted by, to receive life and nourishment and constant feeding from? Father, your word tells us that we as your people have committed two great evils, two great sins that we've forsaken you the fountain of living water and we've turned from you and we've gone to carve out our own cisterns our own wells broken wells that can hold no water 
God, would you keep us from that this morning? We want to treasure you and your word. We want to be blessed truly, regardless of what we're going through this morning, and bear fruit for you where you have us. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, would you make us a people here at Wood's Edge who abide in Jesus and bear fruit for him all the days of our life. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.